HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And, you know, one of the most desired substances consumed by humans and uh, probably a few other species as well is sugar. It dominates diets and is blamed for everything. 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 Slavery to obesity, and it's really almost addictive. And joining me today to talk about this dark history and checkered past, and uh, and actually the the present situation with sugar, is Andy Smith. Andy is no stranger to our studio and to my show. Uh, welcome, Andy. He is a food historian and an author, and and a writer. Extraordinaire. He has published, in addition to his dozens of single-subject books, he has also written a book on the food of the Civil War and the food of New York, and he's been the editor of the Oxford Companion to American Food and Drink. I'm running out of breath. And uh, and an upcoming encyclopedia of the food of New York called Savoring Gotham, which you just told me is coming out about first of november november 2015 wow that's exciting the food of savoring gotham well let's get back to sugar andy you you mentioned uh before we went on the air that you started writing this book a long time ago it was the first book i was going to write i really started in the 1980s and then i concluded that in order to really write a book on sugar one would have to look at probably 100,000 different sources that were located in many different places and i said that was that was beyond my capability and about 8,000 years and 8,000 well no <laughs> oh, 10,000 10, years, years yeah right. <laughs> so we're really talking about a lot of history and something that i really wanted to write a history of the world looking at sugar as as a vehicle for doing that and uh, then said 
Mintz came out with his book, That's Sweetness right. and Power. That's right. I was going to mention and, that. Sid um, Mintz wrote I, Sweetness and Power, I, which was, is, was still the I tried the to convince book, right? him to take his book off off, uh, off print, but he refuses to do that. So <laughs> in any case, I, I arrived at a point of saying I wanted to write a book. And rather than the three-volume master uh, work that I planned on doing, this is one of the shortest books I've ever written. So, <laughs> Well, this book, Sugar, A Global History, is part of the whole Global History series, which of which you are the... Um, executive editor of, mm-hmm. or the editor of, by Reaction Press. And they're cute little volumes. I mean, they're, they're, they're a lot of work packed into these these small, very manageable volumes, and they make a very nice library, concise library of, of single-topic histories. We have 52 published, 52. and we have 30 more under contract, and we're still looking for authors. Yeah, you hear that out there, listeners? Um, think of something that hasn't been written. It has <laughs> to have a good global history, something that's go. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Uh, tell me when you in in you had obviously a lot of information and packing it all in so that to keep the reader interested but for me um, bring me through a little bit of of the history like going back like we said 10,000 years because, is this where I get to do my three-hour lecture get, you do you get to do it <laughs> in a brief sense it, it as originates in New Guinea at relatively quickly goes uh, both um, east, south, and uh, north. And so it will go into Polynesia with Polynesians. It will go into the Indian Ocean. It will go into Southeast Asia. And the first evidence that we have of the sugar industry is actually in India. And from India goes to the Middle East, and from the Middle East to the Mediterranean, from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic Islands, and then the Caribbean and Brazil and History of the world, right? There you go, in a nutshell, right? Um, Well, certainly we know, and we know uh, in from modern day history, modern day meaning Greeks and Romans forward, um, that they knew of sugar. They did, and there, but only if uh, they went to India. Um, There was no sugar in the Mediterranean at that time, and their one comment, which uh, has been often quoted but uh, they said we found that they make this honey from a reed honey is, right ha- well is, because is sweet well sweetness was always was always a desirable flavor honey honeys date honey agave well not we agave, have, but, but we have 10,000 taste bugs uh, buds in our mouth and every single one have a sweet receptor and hmm. so evolutionary uh, we are inclined towards anything that's sweet and and uh, it just so happens that sugarcane uh, which produces sucrose is the sweetest known natural substance uh, there and there actually were recipes going back um, what to 2500 years yeah. there there are some recipes i mean they're not in, obviously in cookbooks but there are ways of preparing of preparing sugar and consuming and you mean alabarak yep included one in his his 10th century cookbook um, from the persian Oh, there are many. Yeah. Uh, the Middle East is uh, as galore mm-hmm. with with uh, sugar recipes of one sort or another. Yeah. When we talk about the sugar, we obviously, as I said, honey and and making mead from honey and honey. Honey had been around because that was you know there it was in people's faces right in their backyards. But um, sugar, we're talking cane sugar mainly. Yeah, but beet sugar too. Beet sugar then comes. It's the same thing. Along, sucrose. But, yeah, sucrose. Sucrose is the end result, and that's the main. But sugar the one that the one that really. Um, I guess it generated such such controversy in its in its past and its handling in the production was primarily the cane sugar. Right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what were some what were some of the earliest? I mean, the, the meanings of sugar changed a lot over time. 
and the uses of sugar, not the meaning of sugar. I mean, but the, when someone said sugar, you know, the delight or, ooh, you know, rage uh, over what was happening. And the uses of sugar also change. What were some of the early uses of sugar? Well, obviously, it depends on where you are and uh, the type of thing you're consuming. But uh, if you're well-to-do in uh, ancient India or in the um, uh, Middle East or uh, Renaissance Europe, the way you would consume it would be through sugar sculptures. I mean, they made these thousands of sugar sculptures that were at at a given dinner or banquet. And the goal was sugar was so important and was so costly that that was the way you demonstrated your wealth and your power. So uh, it didn't make any difference. You would eat the sculptures, but it didn't make, make any difference. You were, you were demonstrating wealth. And that Multi, was multi-tiered, beautiful, elaborate. Right. Uh, but for things. most Europeans, the introduction of sugar actually starts through beverages. It's, it's the introduction of coffee and tea and uh, chocolate in the 17th century that will start off and, and launch sugar, not just for the upper class, but for everybody. What about some of the medicinal uses back in in ancient uh, even ancient in, times? In the only use of sugar in ancient Greek and Roman times was actually for medicinal purposes. So the relatively little amount of sugar that entered into the Roman Empire um, was used to to help help the medicine go down. So <laughs> there is but, truth but that in is that a, song. Yeah. Right? So I mean, you can look at what they they had very bitter herbs that they thought were medicinal, and so most people couldn't couldn't consume them. So they added the sugar to it in order to help that and people consume what they thought was medicinal. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So that really starts off. And, and medicinal aspects to it continue all the way through the 16th and 17th century. So it's not uh, a surprise. And that has to do with the humoral system of medicine, which we could do a whole program on. <laughs> uh, well, actually, well, but the, yeah, but the humors, I mean, that, that dictated so much of the diet and what people would, um, you know, would it be did. told to consume or, you know, wanted to consume. Uh, as far as the the British the British Empire, yes, uh, that brings with it a very um, uh, whole cache of of interesting tales and and a lot of intrigue and of course you know between trade and then slavery and and taxes. Um, I mean, sugar paid for a lot, and sugar was so inextricably tied to tea as well. Uh, yes, in fact, the American Revolution is directly tied to uh, sugar and molasses. And what I found, in, which I knew ahead of time when I started writing the book, but I never put it into context, was the British charged a tax on molasses in 1730. In other words, colonists had to, uh, if they imported molasses from French colonies or from Dutch colonies, they had to pay a tax on it. Nobody complained about taxation without representation in 1730. And the answer is most of the American colonists didn't pay the tax. They engaged in smuggling. (laughs) And so... Can you when, say rum runner? <laughs> it was even before the we've rum. called them founding fathers. All right, so we have a different name for them here. But but it, but many of them were engaged in this. It was a normal thing. It was a normal activity. And the and the reason is the the British um, sugar interest controlled Parliament, and they were the ones that wanted to guarantee that the North American British colonies only bought molasses and only bought sugar from them. And it just so happened that the French had a restriction. They did not want molasses coming into France because of the brandy industry that said, we don't want this imported here. So mm. they had all this molasses left over, which was 60% less costly than the British island tea, uh, the tax that they had on had on it with molasses. So 
virtually everybody engaged in, in smuggling molasses into particularly New England, but, but all the colonies at that point. And right. that was a, a sticking point for the American Revolution. Well, the British being, you know, the renowned colonists that they were, um, they relied on their naval fleets to... Well, that's the difference. When in um, uh, 1764, when the Sugar Act was passed, that is the one that that causes the taxation without representation and will end up with throwing tea into the Boston Harbor and those sort of things. The difference there is when they passed that act, they said, yes, we're going to have a tax. We're going to lower the tax that we had on the earlier act. And then we're going to enforce it. So they sent the British fleet over to the American colonies. And that meant that smuggling didn't stop, but it was much more difficult. And, and that was a reason on, on why certainly a lot of, of revolutionary activity was launched. Yeah. Um, there was not just sugar being brought in, but obviously slaves being brought in to, to produce the sugar. But where were they getting most, where were the British getting most of their cane from at that time? Do you know? I mean, virtually all of the cane from, uh, that came initially would, was from Barbados and from, uh, other, other Caribbean islands. Caribbean islands. And then, uh, the British took over Jamaica, and as soon as Jamaica was taken over, then that became a major, a major production point too. So, it would it would have been the British controlled islands in the Caribbean. But most of the time, Brazil was the largest sugar producer throughout mm-hmm. most of that time, and, and Brazil was a Portuguese colony, and it would they, they sent their um, unrefined raw sugar into all sorts of European ports, and so that was a major source of sugar for much of the. You know, 200 years of colonial America. Right. So the production, the production of, of sugar itself was, you know, because not after, then after you had this, as you say, the, you know, the raw uh, yes. substance, then it had, they had to send it someplace to be refined. Yes. Well, the, they could have refined it in the new world, but mm-hmm. this was what, due to the mercantile theory of, uh, of government at the time, they didn't really want finished products being made in the colonies. They wanted to do that in the home country. So, and also each home country had a different way that they wanted the sugar prepared. So uh, the sugar was prepared differently when it went into uh, New Amsterdam, or Amsterdam, I'm sorry for it went here. But that's another side to it, by the way. New York was a ma- New York City was a major sugar refining center uh, from colonial times all the way up until uh, almost the 21st century. So, right. Anyone so, who's ridden down by, on can, down the FDR Drive. You can see the Domino the, Sugar yeah, sign. On the East uh, River, you, yeah, you can de- see the old factory. I'm delighted to report that the Domino Sugar sign itself is now an historic monument, but that's not right. necessarily the, the, the uh, factory. Domino factory that's right. there, which mm-hmm. is still in up in arms as to what, what's actually <laughs> going to happen. But you mentioned slavery, and that's a very important part of the story. Because uh, from the beginning, uh, nobody really wanted to work in uh, sugar plantations. They didn't want to work in the refineries. They didn't want to do the cutting. They didn't want to do the planting and all the rest of the stuff. So slavery really starts uh, with whoever was at war with somebody else and whoever lost it, <laughs> the armies ended up, the prisoners ended up as slaves working on uh, sugar plantations. And that was true of the Mediterranean. But then, um, obviously, when they moved into the Atlantic Islands, they needed a much larger uh, slave, uh, slave or they needed a much larger base of labor, and that happened to be from sub-Saharan Africa. And the largest number of slaves to come into the New World were there for slave, were there for sugar, and not for tobacco, and not for cotton. And only later on did those become important. Right. So it's a fascinating history that uh, changed world. Yeah, kind of, you know, kind of gives a, you know paints a, a, a bleak, dark picture of, you know, of its past. And now all of a sudden we see that uh, sugar is 
is the new fat. It's vilified. It it is. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that when we come back after a short break. listening to Jump Rope by the Gingerlies. This is a taste of the past on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm talking with Andy Smith, and he uh, has just published a new book called Sugar, A Global History. So new, it's not even on the shelves yet, right? Yes, if you if you get a copy today, you can actually go on and, um, eBay and sell it for a fortune. <laughs> but it will be uh, available. Is it should available be available in about a week or two. Yeah, okay. Um, we're talking about sugar, and, the, and we were talking about uh, slavery. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then, of course, there were all the. We were talking about how sugar now has been vilified. Well, it was back in the Renaissance; it began to be vilified. Or even probably yes, even yeah, it prior did. To that. And in fact, one of the things that I did learn was uh, in the Renaissance, all the paintings of people. If you note very carefully, none of them have their <laughs> none of them have their teeth showing. They all have their mouth closed, and the reason was sugar literally destroyed their teeth. And so Queen Elizabeth was particularly known that, uh, and and there were a number of people who saw her that wrote about it. <laughs> she had black teeth, mm-hmm. uh, and so I found that fascinating. I never really thought about well, why weren't they smiling? I thought. It would, custom or something of that sort, but it really had to do with their teeth. And up until the um, almost the 20th century, that was a serious problem. Yeah, and they loved their sugar. You know, and particularly in the Renaissance time, I remember oh, years ago doing a paper on, on you had mentioned sugar sculptures, but um, they, the upper class loved their sugar and they would even make their, their teacups and their saucers out of sugar they would have made a set of, of sugar teacups and saucers obviously it would disintegrate when you know if it was not thick enough when the tea was poured in and they would end up consuming it at the end of of um, their service literally some banquets had thousands of sculptures and which <sighs> people took home if they didn't consume them on the spot so this was one <laughs> of the ways of saying i, I not only uh, enjoyed the dinner i've got now got this and they took it home and they would not have had sugar in their home mm. so this was a, a tremendously uh, positive sort of thing well we were talking about sydney mince's book yeah. sweetness and power it's that he wrote uh, yeah. years ago and and a story that he tells us is um, how his mother, who was from Belarus, didn't when she came to America, didn't 
didn't like the American sugar cubes because they dissolved too quickly as she was used to chopping off a chunk from a sugar loaf to drink her tea. You know, you hold, hold the sugar cube between your teeth when you drink your tea. But that brings to mind a question I wanted to ask you, and that was on shipping and, and production. How was the majority of the sugar, the refined sugar, shipped years ago? Yes, good question. Uh, and there's numerous different answers to that depending on who you read, and each of them have it. The question is, uh, what at what stage of refining was it at? If mm. it was raw sugar, um, it would have been um, more like t- uh, 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 a Tootsie Roll. You know, It would have been a soft sort of thing, that not white at all, and that would have been dark-colored, and that would have been then packed away in, in large barrels, and that would then be what you would refine, or at least that's one one view. The further refining you did, you had no granulated sugar until the late 19th century, mm-hmm. so it really would have been a solid, and the question was how solid would it be? Lots of evidence suggests that it's rock sugar. I mean, it really is solid, and what you had to do is you had to clip or chip something off of it in order to be able to use it. Well, so you so, can imagine that the the practice of drinking tea with a little sugar under your tongue or between your teeth. So, yeah, you're really not talking something like a, uh, like today the sugar cubes that we have or the granulated mm-hmm. sugar. That that really is an invention of the late 19th century. Hmm, interesting. Um, so it would so blocks these these sugar loaves um that would be a that would be later in the in, not rock it's not rock sugar not rock candy it's but it was it would be a hard it's very condensed. hard yeah and again you have to use clippers in order to get hmm. a, a piece off and uh, that was essentially what was transported and and the, they put it in a cone shape and uh, turned the cone upside down and let the, whatever liquid would be in there would be seeping out as the ship would go along i mean we're talking in some weeks if not months in terms of transportation or at least storage well and that's the other thing you think about you know you know a little dampness is or can do wreak all kinds of havoc on a bag of sugar <laughs> so you know the on what we know as as our our granulated refined sugar so, so. because of the transportation problem, I mean, that was another reason why you refined it at the other end. And so when you refined it, then you put it in whatever shape the people were going to buy. And um, it, it, is, as a, it isn't until the late 19th century that you had granulated sugar and you had sugar cubes and things that we now, yeah. now know and love. Uh, so this, there was the uses of, back to the uses of sugar, and we talked about you know early uses, early medicines, that pharmaceuticals have been using sugar for ever and ever to coat still do yeah and still do right yeah. to coat medicines um pills make them medicine go down alcohol yes well it spawned a whole huge other business yes yeah, so the problem as soon as you squeeze the juice out of out of cane it will immediately begin to ferment and so uh, now it's not going to be the uh, spirits that we know and love, but it would be a, a certainly a beer-ish type of, of beverage. So you you either figure out a way to preserve it by uh, putting so much of the sugar together that you can't won't turn to alcohol, or alternately you convert it into alcohol. So the, the alcohol industry was certainly um, uh, encouraged and increased simply because of the sugar cane. Right. And and uh, molasses is is a byproduct of the original production of sugar. So you had this left over, and but you can make alcohol out of it, and that's where rum will come from, and um, and many other beverages for that matter. Right, right. Well, and sugar itself has 
um, a preserving quality to it. Yeah, but you have to have a certain percentage of it together in one place. If you don't have that percentage, then uh, yeast will get in and yeast will convert it into alcohol. So that's one of the reasons on why if you want the sweetener, then you want to make sure that you have a high enough sugar concentration so that it will not convert to alcohol. Hmm. So, but if you want if you want to create an alcoholic beverage and you have your molasses, all you got to do is add water, and so th- you'll end up with a beerish quality, a beerish rum. Yeah, so it's not <laughs> it's not rum that we know of, right. um, but you can you can get it by by engaging in dist- distillations. So. Well, because the, be, you know people think sometimes of rum and the whole slavery issues around rum as being separate but it's really not i mean it is that's all whole that's all part and parcel of the, the whole, whole rum industry. industry starts off because of sugar right. industry that's correct right. if, if not you'd have brand, brandy is the equivalent of rum but you're in this case using other other products like grapes or, or grapes yeah. right let's uh why do i have rats written down here someone said oh, even rats were were bloated they they liked the taste of sugar They're oh more- no the studies that have been recently i think what you're referring to in your notes the studies <laughs> that have been recently conducted indicate that rats did uh become addicted to sugar and uh, uh, the addiction that it's was the it. addiction and so um the, the rats when given normal rat food refused to eat it and would actually starve uh before they would uh, eat the rat food as opposed to eating the sugar that they had consume so there is a lot of questions as to how um, addictive that sugar really is obviously it's not like heroin and it's not like smoking and it's not like alcohol but it does have an addictive uh, characteristic to it and mm-hmm. that's a real concern and one of the reasons on why a number of, um, of, of medical professionals are arguing that sh- the increase in, in added sugars to pro- particularly processed food and through cakes and candy and Coke and whatnot, uh, the, the, that is the major cause of the obesity crisis in the world today. Right. Those 33-ounce sugared sodas that has no place in our diet or whatever, how many ounces they were. But it does taste good, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, and, and there is, there's a place for sugar and, you know, occasional sugar, you know, a little bit here and there, a celebration, but you know, not the amounts of sugar that, that you can see some people consuming. It's not just the sugar that you know you're consuming, it's the sugar that, that you that's don't right, the know. Hidden, the hidden sugars. I, I mean, I was, I, I shouldn't have been shocked at it, but, you know, I like uh, I hate to say it, but I like French fries. Uh, when I started looking at the description on the French fries, it has sugar on it. And and you start looking at all of the things that you don't think have sugar in them, and in fact they do. And one of the things the companies do... It's not the is, potato starch converting to sugar? They no, added it's, sugar? it's an added sugar on the outside to it, which gives it a flavor that uh, you don't even notice. I mean, you don't even uh, physiologically notice, but your brain does. Mm. And, and so... Um, no wonder it's, I'm addicted to French fries. It's, it's salt, fat, and, and sugar, and and the, bliss, the good things. And the bliss point is there. And <laughs> right. so, I mean, the goal of any any pro- food processor is to create the right balance between those three things, independent of whatever whatever else they have in it and whatever other taste qualities it may have. Well, the fast food market certainly was aware is aware of all that because they all, all, all the studies process, they know. The it, all processed food. Now. It isn't yeah. just fast food. It's the cereal industry. I mean, you start going, it's the bread industry. I mean, you start going down all of the things that have it. And companies are wise to that, and they now have several different names of sugar. <laughs> 
<laughs> so that it doesn't look like it's the number one ingredient, which it is. One cereal. Sucralose grog. I, I stopped at 50 names that, that were legally, legally used to, to, to refer to sugar. And it isn't necessarily a sucrose, but, but it is other sugars, that lots of other sugars are out there. Well, the sugar industry loves that. I, you know, just back to, back to the, um, you know, the, the British you know, sugar barons and all yeah. that. The taxes alone um, on the sugar supported their whole naval fleet. I mean, that it was it was on just sugar. I mean, forget the tea. You know, that was the sugar industry. Um, it we can't. I mean, we can't blame them because we liked it and we wanted it and it was supply and it was demand for you know for the product. But um, they knew they were onto a good thing. Tell me what. Uh, tell me about the democratization of sugar. What do what do we mean by that? Am I that? Uh, until um, about the um, early uh, or the late 18th, 18th century, early 19th century, I mean, the, it was a upper class treat. I mean, that you only could afford to buy it or anybody would want to expend money on buying a sugary product would have to have a lot of money. So it is it, it, the introduction of tea. It is the introduction of coffee that introduces sugar to the lower class. And as soon as the price of sugar drops, as soon as you end slavery, which was another thing that I found shocking, um, uh, Adam Smith, who wrote The Wealth of Nations, came along and said, slavery is totally inefficient, it's useless, and it, it is causing not only social problems on the slave side to it, but it is causing economic issues because they're not innovating and creating. And as soon as they ended slavery, you had huge technological improvements in the in the sugar making process, so that when slavery ended, the price of sugar dropped dramatically. Hmm. So, as soon as the price of sugar dropped dramatically in the mid nineteenth century, then virtually anybody could afford it, and uh, that was one of the luxuries that that anybody, regardless of how poor you were, you could still consume something that had sugar in it. Right. And it m- might be for just for coffee or tea, or it might be for a treat. Or it might be for candy, and then candy production came along, and it's penny candy. We're not talking expensive candy right, at all. Right. So um, it really uh, became the the the, uh, the pleasure of virtually everybody that had access to it. And really, until the 20th century, people weren't really sure of. I mean, there was nutritional studies were so vague. I mean, a lot of people thought there was nutritional value in. Uh, there is nutritional value. I'm sorry well. to say. It's, it's, it's calories. Now, calories. To, calories. Today, calories sound bad to us, but up until the mid-20th mid, the mid century, I mean, the problem for the large large number of people throughout the world, and many people today, is they're not consuming enough calories. So for those of us that um, are no longer getting the exercise that our, our grand ancestors and grandparents might have had, um, and those of us um, that are consuming too many calories, uh, th- that's that's a problem that creates obesity but for still for many people calories is an important part of nutrition so the, the part of the problem also is that if you're consuming calories in terms of sugar you're not consuming other calories that will have a lot of other nutrients and nutritional components to it and so that is the arguments that currently right, are so we tell our children don't spoil your appetite right you don't consume those calories beforehand um we did not we we mentioned briefly beet sugar but but going yeah. back to that so that is another source of sugar, and that in itself is a large industry. Um, what, where are the majority of the beets that we know of? Is the beet the 
that we use the beet sugar. What is the beet sugar used for mostly today? It's, it's exactly the same thing as I mean, sucrose is sucrose is sucrose. It doesn't make any difference where it comes from. So it's used for the exact same purposes that you have ref, uh, refined sugar cane. So uh, it is, in the end product, it is more expensive. It is, uh, And it really is there because of political choices that countries have made, including the United States. And one of the things that we want to do is protect our sugar beet growers in the West, and that's a political decision that Congress makes. So we have quotas on imported sugar. We uh, place tariffs on uh, imported sugar, and um, it makes it possible to, for people, farmers, to grow sugar beets, even though the sugar beets cost more to process and create the sugar coming out the other end than it does from sugar cane. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you, where give an example of where we see the most beet sugar being used um, commercially? Do you, can you know? I mean, I I'm thinking I saw I saw a wonderful um, documentary one time on on the beet growers actually in Michigan and not even in the West, um, but it was fascinating to watch the the process. And going to the store, you rarely see you know if you look at the bag, it says 100% cane sugar. I guess if the bag said beet sugar I, it would catch my eye but i don't know i'm gonna to have to be a little bit more <laughs> i'm gonna go have to i'm gonna yeah. have to go check that out. as far I, as i, I, I know I, from a chemical standpoint there's no difference and, in it now it may be that it might be used in industry more it may be used in industry it may be that there are impurities that they intentionally leave in the beet beet sugar that uh, will give it a different flavor or a different taste I, I don't know for sure hmm. well it's all as we can tell i mean we're we just we could go on talking about the the very all the various uh, plots, <laughs> plots and and histories involved around around this food. Substance. Yes, but the interesting thing is the current political shift that's underway. Uh, Cuba was by far the largest um, uh, supplier of sugar to yeah, the United States. Yeah, what's going to happen now? We've, and if we've if and I, I raised the if side to it, yeah. uh, if trade barriers are uh, removed, uh, the, the sugar cane industry in Cuba will thrive, and it, if given total free trade, would run the sugar beet growers and and the sugar cane growers in uh, Florida out of business. Mm. So, um, I mean, that is, it's a much better place from a, um, a weather and climate standpoint to grow cane. And so if if that happens, then uh, a result will be political. Hmm. Interesting. Um, you, it's interesting that, that another book that has just been released or um, was just being released around the same, just at the same time as, as your book as one that you also were a contributor to, and that's the Oxford Companion to Sugar it's and great Sweets. Right. I just received my copy two days ago, so I've been <laughs> thumbing through it and saying, oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> um, edited by Dara Goldstein, who's been on our show before, and associate editor Michael Crandall. Ed- Michael Crandall, who's, yeah. yeah. who's been a, a frequent guest here. And Forward and that was written by none other than Sidney Mintz. <laughs> and uh, this is – it's an interesting book. I've just – been able to glance at it briefly at uh, the food book fair the other weekend and um, telling a bit of the history, not as the concise, you know, in-depth histories that you are going through, but gives the historical context here and there and lots of recipes and uses of sugar in countries around the world, yeah. uh, which is which is a, a wonderful compendium of, of sugar and sweets. It's a great to book. Be found. Yeah, yeah. And it's a book uh, that I'm, I'm absolutely delighted to have made a contribution to, but I've also learned so much from I thought I knew there, a lot about so, sugar until I started go. reading yeah, some of the so, articles. Uh, I, it's whoa. Just, which just goes to point once again up to the fact that there is so much to to know and learn about sugar and, and 
and then what you know the effects that it has. You can spend a lifetime. On. It's yeah. a lifetime. Well, you, as you know, you've yeah. been working on this a long thirty time. Year, more than thirty-five years now. Yeah. Well, it's not fats anymore. That we can go ahead and eat the the butter and the bacon, but don't eat the sugar. That's what they're don't telling us the now. Added, right? Don't eat the added <laughs> don't sugar. Don't eat the added so, sugar. There's okay. there's a difference. Yeah. And have your birthday cake and enjoy it. Right? Yes, <laughs> I like birthday cake. Andy, thank you so much. As always, thank it's been you, a pleasure Lynn. talking to you here on a taste of the past. And again, Andy's new book is called Sugar, A Global History. And thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past. Please tune in again. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.